Hey, homegirls and homeboys, I'm Arielle. And I'm Amanda, and we're the Homicide Homegirls. Just two best friends discussing true crime cases that they can't stop obsessing over. If you're like us and your guilty pleasure is serial killer documentaries, whodunit mysteries, and procedural police shows, then you're in the right place. So buckle up, Buttercup, grab an adult beverage, and get ready, because on Wednesdays, we talk murder. Welcome back, guys. Man, that intro never gets old. Right. Bop. So, I hope y'all enjoyed parts one and two and are ready for the conclusion of the Cleveland kidnappings. Um, sorry you had to wait two weeks in between each part, but, you know, it's been crazy for us. I'm not so. sorry. You're not ever sorry about anything, because you're a bitch. For so. sure. <laughs> for sure. Um, so, real quick before we get started, I need to correct something that I said in part two. So last time Amanda uh, asked if, I think it was last time, you asked if Michelle's family yeah, ever it was. reported her missing, and I said they never did, but apparently I lied to y'all. They did report lie. her missing. Um, according to an ABC News article from May of 2013, Michelle's family actually did file um, a missing persons report, but she was dismissed as a runaway by police, so her case never got much attention like the other girls did. Um, Michelle's grandmother, Deborah Knight, told the Washington Post that family members assumed Michelle left on her own because she was upset about the situation surrounding her losing custody of her son. So they all just were like, well, it makes sense. And she was 20 or 21, one of the two. So she was That was the older. second, the last time, not the first time. Yeah, the second time. Like, the first time she ran away, she was like 14. But was she, we don't know. Uh, yeah, I don't know. So, after 15 months, Michelle was removed from the FBI's database of missing people when police could not reach her mother to confirm that she had never returned home. Michelle's mother, Barbara Knight, told the Washington Post that she always thought of her daughter as a missing person, even when police stopped searching for her. She claimed that she still put up flyers all over Cleveland's west side. Barbara claimed that she and Michelle were close and that she, Michelle would not have disappeared without a phone call. But Michelle kind of, like, disputed that in her book. And, like, I kind of agree with Michelle. Like, her mom made it seem like she was this great parent. And, like, they had this great relationship. And I just, you know, like Michelle said, from her side, it was not anything like that. You know? Yeah. So, and then Michelle's mother, Barbara, eventually moved from Cleveland to Florida. Like, who does that? Like, I know you have to, like, move on with your life. But mm. most people who have children that go missing never leave their city many staying at the same home like in hopes that their kid mm, like comes Gen- home. like jennifer kessie's family right like they, they still right yeah so i don't know man it, that's really strange to me and like michelle also did not want any visitors family or otherwise like when she was in the hospital um like after she escaped like and if you remember her brothers are the only ones that she allowed to see her and like i was actually reading some articles that like her mom actually got a lawyer who was like calling the hospital checking on michelle and like wanting to know if she was still there and basically like they wouldn't tell them anything like michelle didn't want her family knowing anything 
I guess she was upset that they didn't, like, yeah. push as hard as the other girl's family. I mean, family. I can't I say I wouldn't it. feel any different. Yeah. So, um, like, they actually found out that Michelle was discharged from the hospital via the news media. Wow. Yeah. Like I said, I get it. I mean, I would be upset, too, you know? So, I don't know. It just all seems kind of sketchy to me. Like, like, almost like her family was trying to get, like, their 15 minutes of fame you know from her being found when y'all didn't really mm-hmm. yeah pursue it much when she you know what i'm saying um anyway i just wanted to correct myself from last time since i gave y'all wrong information my b so when we ended part two um after kidnapping three young women michelle knight amanda barry and gina de jesus and holding them captive in his horrifyingly disgusting house of horrors at 2207 seymour avenue in cleveland ohio for more than a decade the disgustingly vile human Ariel Castro had been arrested after the girls bravely escaped. So to start off part three, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about Ariel Castro's history, mainly just to get an idea of like how he ended up being such a fucking monster. Then we're going to talk about court proceedings, um, his time in jail, where the girls are today, you know, that kind of thing. Just like last time, quick trigger warning, because this is going to get kind of gnarly at some point. So like fair warning. So, Ariel Castro seemed like your typical normal suburban dad. You know, he owned a house. He dressed pretty nicely. He was a school bus driver for a primary school. He played in a salsa merengue band on the weekends. And according to his bandmates, they knew him, like, as a bachelor. Um, Like, they knew he had kids, but he was just living his life like he was single. Like, he didn't have custody of them. But unbeknownst to everyone around him... Ariel Castro created a literal torture chamber at 2207 Seymour Avenue. The house on Seymour Avenue was completely boarded up, like the closet doors had been used to board up the windows from the inside. According How to is that not alarming to, to anyone anybody? in that neighborhood? Right. Right. Like I said last time, the damn, um, the screen door was like padlocked shut. I mean, I've seen the picture. Like, yeah. Yeah. Sir, it is not hurricane season. (laughs) You do not live in Louisiana, right? But I think it was like a rough part of town, so maybe like that's, I don't know. Hmm. Yeah. We handle shit like that differently in the South. Right. According to FBI Supervisory Special Agent Tim Kalanick on the 2020 special that I watched, the bolts that held the doors onto the walls had been sheared off and placed behind plexiglass so that the girls couldn't attempt to escape. Like, he covered up the bolts. Like, they couldn't try to unscrew them to, like, get the boards off the windows Mm. and, like, escape. Amanda told 2020 that Castro was very mean and even his eyes were black. And if you looked into them, you could tell that he just did not have a soul. And honestly, like, I can totally see that. Like, his eyes are what I like to call shark eyes. Like, just black. And, like, nothing there. Like, just creepy. And I've often wondered how someone who no one suspected of being so horrible could do these kinds of things. But if you really dig into Castro's history, it's not hard to connect the dots and see that he was kind of a ticking time bomb. Hmm. So Ariel Castro was born the third of four children to parents Pedro, Nona Castro, and Lillian Rodriguez in Puerto Rico on July 10th, 1960. When Ariel was just a year old, his father left his mother, who was pregnant with their fourth child, for another woman, who he eventually had two children with. 
So a few years later, Ariel's father moved to Cleveland from Puerto Rico to chase the American dream, leaving his first family behind, but eventually sending for his second family. Like the woman that he left his Ariel's mother for and then had two more kids with her. Yeah, he sent back for them, but left Ariel and his other three siblings. Oh, when you say sent back, you mean... Like, like they came to Cleveland with him. Okay. Yeah, sent back for them. When Ariel was four years old, his mother also left Puerto Rico to move to America as well. And she moved to, um, is it, do you say that reading or reading? I think it's reading, but reading, I could Pennsylvania? totally be wrong. Yeah. I'm no geography whiz. No. I'm going to go with reading because I don't think it's pronounced reading, but reading, Pennsylvania, where she found a job operating a sewing machine in a factory. Um, Lillian left her children in Puerto Rico with her mother until Ariel was around six years old when she'd saved enough money and returned to Puerto Rico and brought all four of her children with her to Pennsylvania. But Ariel claims that while he was living with his grandmother, when he was around five, he was sexually abused by a neighbor boy who was about nine or ten years old. According to Ariel... I'm going to fucking say that's not a fucking excuse, but go ahead. No, no, no. According to Ariel, the abuse continued for a year, but he never reported it to anyone. His fucking bad. Um, It should be noted that these claims have never been able to be substantiated, so who really knows if he's telling the truth or if he just fabricated that story, like, to try to give himself, like, an out, like an excuse. When Ariel was 12, Lillian moved the family to Cleveland from Pennsylvania so the children could be closer to their father. There were small indications of Castro's sexual deviance when he was in junior high. He told police after his arrest that he had a girlfriend in junior high who would allow him to touch her breasts under her shirt, but he wanted to go farther, but she kept telling him no. So then he tried to force her. He told police, quote, I guess that was an early indication that I wanted to be in control, end quote. No means no, you motherfucker. So you're in junior high trying to rape somebody? Yeah. That's rape. (laughs) Attempted rape. Castro graduated high school in 1979 at the age of 19, and a year later, he met the woman who would become his common-law spouse, Gramilda Figueroa, who went by Nilda. Mm -hmm. After a miscarriage, Ariel and Nilda's first son, Ariel Anthony Castro, was born in 1981 when Nilda was just 18 years old. It didn't take long for Castro to become possessive over Nilda forcing her to wear long skirts and forbidding her from wearing v-neck shirts or anything slightly revealing i'm kind of doing the math here the age difference oh yeah yeah he was he's older than her he was born in 1960 and she was born in well well in 81 she was 18 and he in 81 he He was, was 21 yeah yeah so, yeah, if they had been dating when she was a minor. Yeah. And, like, she had taken in the book. Like I said, go read their books. Really Bring them to my house. I will. <laughs> Bring them <laughs> to my house. Um, when he picked her up for their first date or whatever, like, apparently they stayed out, like, later than her dad told them to. So, when he tried to bring her home, her parents were like, no, she's your problem now. And, like, wouldn't let Bitch, her back in the Kelsey house. Kelsey would be... <laughs> Like, they wouldn't let her back in the house. Um, Yeah. mm -mm. Eventually, Ariel started buying all of her clothing at thrift stores, effectively controlling everything that she wore. He also did not like it when Nilda left the house without him. He sounds like a real winner. After their second child, Angie, was born in 1983, 
Ariel would lock the deadbolt of their duplex from the outside and take the key with him so Nilda couldn't leave. Like, I guess the inside had a key, too. Exhibit A. I was about to say, just My like that locked door. right there. <laughs> Wait, so he would lock, he would lock from the his common-law spouse and their two children? Right. Okay. What if, like, one of them got hurt? Like, you, you can't go to the hospital? You can't? Mm. Yeah. He told her that he was, quote, just trying to keep her safe. Bullshit. Right. Castro wouldn't even allow Nilda to visit her family or friends unless he was with her. Like a bouquet of red flags. One day in 1985, he left the door unlocked, so Nilda walked to the grocery store. When she got back, she was walking up the wooden stairs to their second floor apartment carrying full bags of groceries. And Castro jumped out and shoved this creepy-ass mannequin that he had that he had found in a garage sale, like, in her face. And he scared her so bad that she, like, felt, like jumped back. And she went tumbling backwards down the stairs and hit her head really hard at the bottom. She was rushed to the hospital and taken into emergency surgery for a fractured skull. And that's what really happened? Allegedly? Yeah. Okay. He says he was just trying to scare her. But no, but, like... That whole mannequin scare fall down the stairs is legit? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He says that, like, he was just trying to scare her, and she's like, no, like, he was trying to push me down the stairs, you know? So, Nilda actually told her sister that she believed, oh, hey, that's my, I just said that, but that's the next part. <laughs> um, she told her sister she believed he intentionally caused her to fall because he was angry that she defied him and left the house alone. Nilda wanted desperately to leave Ariel, but she couldn't support their children on her own, and her family couldn't afford to help her. So, Castro had also threatened to kill her if she ever tried to take his children away from him. With no job, no income, and nowhere to go, Nilda didn't have any options, so she stayed. But as it always does, the abuse only escalated. Castro would beat Nilda any time she did or said something he didn't like. One day, he flew into a rage and broke her arm and her ribs and punched her, breaking her teeth, which required dental surgery. And he had, like, this big, like, washing machine box. Like, I guess they got a new washer and he just kept the box. He would, like, lock her in the box if he got pissed off at her. Okay, that's a little childish. Right. Right. Like, he was just, like, okay. So... After that, when he, like, punched her teeth out and stuff, Nilda's father, brother, and a few friends grabbed Castro in the front yard and beat the absolute shit out of him. I am envisioning my three <laughs> brothers and my dad right right now. <laughs> and they told uh, told him that they'd kill him if he ever touched her again. Naturally, yeah, Castro... that sounds about right. Yeah. He didn't apologize, and he just smiled as he walked away after they beat the shit out of him. So, by February 1991, when Ariel got his job as a bus driver for the Cleveland Metropolitan School District, the couple had four children. Castro treated his three daughters well and was a good father when the mood suited him, but he continued to beat Nilda and eventually started beating his son, Ariel Anthony, when he was 10. Castro would also force Nilda to have sex even when she didn't want to. And he was so paranoid that he would constantly accuse Nilda of cheating and listen in on all her phone conversations by picking up the other line in the home. Like, her friends would be like, why did, like, they would hear, like, him breathing on the phone. Disgusting. Like, how creepy. So, 
Eight years after Nilda fell down the stairs in 1993, she was diagnosed with a brain tumor. It was a meningioma, which is a tumor that can be traced back to an injury or trauma to the brain. Nilda blamed Ariel, obviously, like for the fall down the stairs. Mm -hmm. Nilda had brain surgery to remove the tumor, and a month after her surgery, on the day after Christmas 1993, Ariel got drunk and started beating Nilda again, then left the home. She called 911 and reported her husband, so police were out searching for him. But he showed back up to the home and demanded to be let in. This is so sad. Angie, their daughter, who was 10 at the time, didn't realize her father had just beaten her mother. So she sat there and demanded that her mom let him back in. Mm-hmm. So Nilda finally agreed. But when she did, Ariel pushed his way. Like, he, like, busted into the house, started beating Nilda yet again. And when she fell to the ground, he started stomping on her head with his boot the day after she had just had brain surgery what the fuck that man could have been none of this could have happened if that bitch would have just fucking killed him right castro realized his son was running to call police so he took off again police found him and brought him to jail and referred the case to a county prosecutor after nilda gave a more detailed statement the next day but on february 9th 1994 a grand jury declined to indict Ariel, mainly due to the fact that there wasn't enough evidence because Nilda refused to testify. Mm-mm. Y'all finna put me in witness protection program because I ain't finna put up with that shit. She was actually walking into the courthouse to testify when Ariel stopped her at the entrance and threatened her yet again. He told her that he'd kill her and the kids if she testified before the grand jury. So she was terrified. So she didn't go into the courthouse. Like, do they not have, like, like you said, like, witness protection or, like, a protective detail with her? Like, if y'all know he's, like, known to, they, they knew he was known to, like, threaten her and stuff. Like, why would they not have somebody with her? hmm I mean, you can't, that's witness tampering, isn't it? Or witness intimidation, whatever it's called. Yeah, Obstruction of justice. He over there sleeping. <laughs> y'all, we have a secret guest today. Deputy Alejandro <laughs> is his alias. Is his alias. But he's over there falling asleep, so. After landing in the hospital again in the summer of 1995 with a broken nose, a missing tooth, and bruises all over her face from yet another beating from Ariel, Nilda met a security guard at the hospital named Fernando Colon, who asked if she was okay and took an interest in her because. He noticed the signs of domestic abuse and he's like you're in here a lot you mm-hmm. know like he i guess she would come in on his shifts it just so happened that he would be working when she'd come in so he became Nilda's confidant and started helping her come up with a plan to leave ariel because if he didn't he knew she would end up dead so in early 1996 cologne went and picked up nilda and three of her children while ariel was at work and took them to safety Angie was 12 at the time and insisted on staying with her father. That's why they only picked up three of the four kids. Ariel was furious when he realized what happened. In March 1996, Nilda filed for full custody of all of her children. The case dragged on in the courts, but finally in January 1997, Nilda was awarded full custody of all four children and Angie was forced to go and live with her. 
So if you remember when Gina went missing, the friend she was with was Arlene Castro. And the mom that they interviewed was Nilda, you know, Castro's ex-wife or whatever. So Arlene is one of the three daughters. Yes. And also, we've talked about Fernando Carlone before, too, because he's like the stepdad that they kind of, they thought he was like a suspect at first. Because he's the stepdad. Gina. Because he's the stepdad that um, Arlene had walked to his security office. He was like a security office, whatever, Mm -hmm. um, security guard. And um, they were like, well, he could have brought Arlene home and then doubled back for Gina. And he's the one, remember he said he told the investigator or the FBI that they needed to look into Ariel Castro, but the FBI says that he never said that. So we've talked about him before. So this is a slight sidebar about one of AC's daughters, Emily. She's the one that Michelle knew from school. Um, According to Amanda and Gina's book, Emily and her boyfriend had a daughter in 2006 when Emily was 19. The couple were living together with the infant in Fort Wayne, Indiana. But in April 2007, Emily's boyfriend moved out and left the 11-month-old baby with Emily. The day after he left, Emily took the baby into the garage and slashed her neck four times with a knife. The baby. Wait, hold on. Emily is AC's one of his daughters? Yes. This is, like, related but unrelated. She's a 103M, too? explain 103 m so 103 is a disturbance Mm -hmm. and um mentally yes so yes she is we refer to people mentally ill yeah so i guess uh it's a noun i don't know (laughs) so 103 m usually refers to somebody who's off their fucking rocker yeah somebody who slit their 11 month old baby's throat four times so did she wait i need to i need to know more oh i'm yeah okay i got more okay but wait there's more so uh, according to legal documents emily was upset that her boyfriend had left her and moved out seems like an extreme reaction but well that escalated quickly right like it's not the baby's fault but okay Emily's mother, Grimilda Figueroa, the one Wait, the baby died, right? Huh? Did the baby die? You'll you'll see. Oh, motherfucker. So her mother, Emily's mother, Nilda, was at the house at the time, and when she discovered what was going on, she rushed the bleeding infant into the street and was able to flag down a driver who called 911. Bitch. Imagine. Fucking imagine driving up on that. Yeah, for sure miraculously the infant ended up surviving wow when police located emily she was covered in blood and mud and told them she had tried to kill herself by cutting her own neck and wrists with the very same knife she had used on the baby when that didn't work she told police she attempted to drown herself in a nearby creek how do how does one uh drown I themselves I, I see i was wondering that too I okay don't know. unclear yeah emily's defense at trial was that she was mentally ill obviously and had become paranoid and thought that her family was trying to kill her and her baby still the judge ruled that emily had the ability to know right or wrong Um, Her brother, Anthony Castro, spoke at her sentencing hearing and said that 
she wasn't an animal and that they had been dealing with her mental issues for years. Ultimately, Emily was convicted of attempted murder and sentenced to 30 years in prison with five years suspended. She appealed her sentence in 2010, claiming that the court incorrectly ruled her competent to stand trial, but her appeal was denied. So she's still in prison. The book? Right. Like that, I came across that and I was like, okay, I have to include this. Like apple doesn't fall far from the tree kind of thing. It's just, it's the fucking poison apple. (laughs) Yeah, no shit. I don't know. It's just really sad. Like her brother said they had been dealing with like her mental health issues. So it's like, maybe they were too poor to like get her the actual help that she needed. Yeah. You know? So on July 26, 2013, Castro agreed to a plea deal with prosecutors so he could avoid the death penalty. The plea deal also spared his victims of having to testify at trial. Although I am in no way saying that's what his intentions were. Like, I don't, like, I don't think he did it. Oh, I don't want them to have to testify. You know, I'm not saying, like, that he's, like, noble or anything because he's a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. I 100% do not think he was thinking of his victims, like, at all. No. Definitely thinking of himself. Yeah. According to the plea deal, Castro would be sentenced to life in prison with no chance for parole. He would never be allowed to request a parole hearing, as he should. Castro received life in prison plus 1,000 years. The plea deal also allowed Castro to avoid his impending trial, which was scheduled to begin August 5th, 2013. So, like, less than a week later. Or a little over a week later. And it it would remove the death penalty as an option for sentencing. Is that, like, what he was trying to avoid? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Also, as part of his plea deal, Castro forfeited his House of Horrors on Seymour Avenue. He had to sign over the deed. Good. Fuck him. Yeah. Judge Michael J. Russo ruled that the house would be demolished. According to CNN, Castro was originally charged with 977 different counts. That's insane. Including aggravated murder on suspicion of ending the pregnancy of one of his victims, kidnapping, rape, child endangerment, felonious assault, and gross sexual imposition, among many other charges. Like... Oh, yeah. my God. The list goes on and on for 10 years. I mean. Yeah. And like I said, they they used a lot of Amanda's diet. Like, Amanda's diary was kind of, like, pivotal in knowing what happened, how many, how many charges. Because she yeah. wrote, like, 5X, like, five times I was raped today. So, they were. It's, it, it, it's amazing that he didn't get his hands on that. and Or that he was too stupid to, to, to put, to think, like, that yeah. that's what that meant. But that's why she did it. Yeah. Because it, was, it wasn't obvious well, that that's what I she Well, I mean, was... even when you say journal, like, yeah. I know she didn't, like, just outright describe mm-hmm. the I was raped X amount of times. Yeah. But the 5X mm-hmm. indicated how many. But, right. like, were there other journal entries as far as, like, I don't know. You know, like, right. actual journaling. Mm-hmm. Probably. But like I said, he was probably but like how did like cause. I'm surprised he didn't even because like journals are so personal. Mm-hmm. So they, like it's yeah. amazing that he didn't rip that away from them either, right. or like let them have a journal and then once they finished it, burn yeah. it or something, you know? Because obviously she still had them all because they like I said they used them in for trial or to get the number of counts. So. um Ultimately, Castro pled guilty to 937 total counts. Cuyahoga County Prosecutor Timothy J. McGinty said 
937 was a conservative number of the possible counts against Castro, and he referred to Castro as evil incarnate. Judge Michael J. Russo sentenced Errol Castro to life in prison without parole, plus 1,000 years on August 1st, 2013. Y'all. Ugh. This motherfucker literally sat in court and gave a 16 fucking minute statement blaming being sexually abused as a child and having a porn addiction for kidnapping three girls. I refuse to play clips of his statement because honestly, fuck him and the horse he rode in on. Does not compute. He said he wasn't a monster like people were saying he was. He was sick air quotes in his sexual problems were so bad on his mind that it made him impulsive i'm impulsive too but you know what i do i buy things i don't rape people can't nobody make me do nothing but die and pay taxes (laughs) so then he started talking about how he was a musician and how he couldn't have been a musician and a monster at the same time why not right and that he's quote that he's a quote happy person inside motherfucker what yeah because he's fucking controlling and gets what he fucking wants like what does that even mean though then he started talking about driving a school bus for years like that's fucking relevant then he says he never had a record until he met his children's mother his first like his common nilda his common law wife he literally said he was not abusive until he met her Oh my um, god. He was 19 when that happened, so... Right. And you had already tried to rape somebody in junior high, so... Right. That was a lie. Like, I was shaking watching that video the way I wanted to beat that man's ass. Like, he literally was trying to say he wasn't abusive when he fractured his wife's fucking skull. Like, what the fuck is wrong with you? He said he wasn't a wife beater, and that only happened because he couldn't get her to, quote quiet down so that means you can beat you beat her like he claimed that his wife put her hands on him so he reacted by putting his hands on her but i honestly don't believe that bullshit like a likely story he seriously sat there and told the judge in the court and everybody that all these accusations that he raped and beat these women were inaccurate because he's not a violent person sure jan and <laughs> this is about to blow your fucking mind because this is a direct quote from him. Quote, I simply kept them there without them being able to leave. End quote. Yes, that is called kidnapping and false imprisonment, sir. Shut the fuck up. I literally have written down, that's kidnapping and unlawful imprisonment, you dumb fuck. Oh my God. <laughs> literally have that written down. Also, he's stupid as fuck because he said he kidnapped Gina second, which is false. Like, he he couldn't even remember the order. Like, you idiot. And then he said he did not kidnap Amanda because she willingly got into his vehicle. Sir. 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 Yes, she did. But then you wouldn't allow her to leave your home. So that is fucking kidnapping, you absolute fucking walnut. Like, what? He literally said, and I quote, 
most of the sex that went on in that house and probably all of it was consensual i bet these allegations about being forceful upon them that is totally wrong because there were times that they would even ask me for sex many times and i learned that these girls were not virgins from their testimony to me they had multiple partners before me all three of them no fucking sir absolutely not we are not we're not doing this how did the judge allow him to continue speaking like how did no, you walk no, out of that No, you don't get, no. no. Yeah, you, you don't, don't get, get to say it. that. You don't say that. Yeah. No. No, I don't, I don't fucking think so. And like, Objection? Yeah. Yeah. And, like, how did those poor girls' families listen to this? Like, I would have strangled that motherfucker, dude. Like, and, ha- and smiled in my fucking mugshot. He eventually apologized to the victims at the almost 10-minute mark of his 16-minute speech. 16-minute speech. Then this fucker started crying, talking about how he didn't know why he had done this. Like, but just, but you did know why when you yeah. when you blamed it on your your right. abuse. Like, shut the fuck up. Shut 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 up. So which is it? Right. You you you're just coming off as stupid. Like I hated Ariel Castro before, but oh boy. Like after watching this video, I loathe him. Hate hate hate. Double hate. Loathe entirely. He literally said, quote, we had a lot of harmony going on in that home, end quote. Because they fucking were scared of you. Yeah. Yeah. Then he referenced a YouTube video of Amanda from, like, the weekend before this. And said that it proves that she did not go through torture because if that was true, she wouldn't be out there partying and having fun. Okay, I was like, what the fuck? So, like, I Googled it. And on July 29, 2013, Nelly, the rapper, brought Amanda and her sister Beth on stage at Rover Fest in Cleveland, which is a music festival from one of the radio stations there. And he had them on stage while he performed uh, his song, Just a Dream, that was yeah. out at the time. Uh-huh. So this is what Ariel was referencing. Okay, one, fuck off. Two, how dare you? And three, just because she's enjoying her freedom after you kidnapped her at fucking 16 years old doesn't mean she wasn't tortured or she isn't traumatized? Like, what the ever-loving fuck? Like, I fucking hate him. Like, what? Then he brought up Gina and said how she's been, quote, normal with her friends and someone who's been tortured doesn't act normal. What the fuck, dude? Then he brought up how Michelle never had anyone looking for her like how horrible can you be like he apologized to his victims the state of ohio the city of cleveland his family then followed it up with quote but i do want to let you know that there was harmony in that home so he said it twice it's like what no so that's called fear that's what that's called yeah so he just basically like incoherently rambled for like 16 minutes and took zero responsibility for what he did he blamed everything and everyone except the one person who actually was to blame ariel fucking castro such a fucking twat dude all right like i'm done with him fuck him amanda and gina decided not to attend castro's sentencing hearing not wanting to give him the opportunity to see them again instead the women sent family members to give statements on their behalf Amanda's sister Beth spoke for her and Gina's cousin Sylvia Cologne spoke for her. One of the most powerful moments was at the very end of Sylvia's statement when she turned directly to Ariel Castro 
and said, quote, to Ariel Castro, que Dios se apide de su alma, which translates to, may God have mercy on your soul. And she looked him dead in the eyes. And who said that? Sylvia? Yeah, um, Gina's cousin. Michelle Knight showed up. And she spoke directly to her doctor. And she is so tiny. Like, she's like four foot 11. Like, I mean, I'm four foot eight or something like four foot nine. She's tiny. So it was like weird because she looks like a child. But she spoke directly to her doctor saying, quote, you took 11 years of my life away and I have got it back. I spent 11 years in hell. Now your hell is just beginning. I will overcome all this that has happened, but you will face hell for eternity. From this moment on, I will not let you define me or who I am. I will live on. You will die a little every day as you think about the 11 years of atrocities that you inflicted on us. What does God think about you hypocritically going to church every Sunday, then coming home to torture us? The death penalty would be so much easier. You don't deserve that. You deserve to spend life in prison. I can forgive you, but I will never forget. End quote. Like, oh my God. <laughs> Judge Michael Russo told Castro, quote, you don't deserve to be in our community. You're too dangerous, end quote. Judge Russo made it really clear how disgusted he was with Castro's actions, and he made it clear he was also not playing games with him. He told Castro, quote, in your mind, there was harmony in a happy household. I'm not sure there's anyone else in America who would agree with you, end quote. Re-fucking-tweet. Right. He told Castro, quote, Sir, there is no place in this city, there is no place in this country, indeed, there is no place in this world for those who enslave others, those who sexually assault others, and those who brutalize others. For more than 10 years, you have preyed upon three young women. You, subject, you subjected them to harsh and violent conduct. You felt you were dominating them, but you were incorrect. You did not take away their dignity. Although they suffered terribly, Miss Knight, Miss De Jesus, and Miss Berry did not give up hope. They have persevered. In fact, they prevailed. These remarkable women again have their freedom, which is the most precious aspect of being an American. Mr. Castro, you forfeited that right. You now become a number with the Department of Rehabilitation and Correction. You will be confined for the remainder of your days. You are hereby remanded to transport to Lorraine Correctional Institution. End quote. How powerful. Like, mic drop. Dr. Frank... Um, Ackberg, who specializes in trauma science, performed a pre-sentencing evaluation of the victims and wrote in his report that Michelle Knight suffered, quote, the longest and most severely. It was Michelle who served as doctor, nurse, midwife, and pediatrician during the birth of Barry's child. She breathed life into that infant when she wasn't breathing. At other times, she interceded when Castro sought to abuse Gina, interposing herself and absorbing physical and sexual trauma. But each survivor had a will to prevail and use that will to live through the ordeal, end quote. So the house on Seymour Avenue was demolished on August 7th, 2013, almost three months after the women escaped from that hellhole. And just six days after Castro was sentenced. So that was quick. Oh, she yeah. Yeah. Six days after sentencing, mm -hmm. which right. this episode releases on August 4th. So, yeah. It would be eight years? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It seems so crazy. Like, I feel like, like, <coughs> excuse me. I know we were obviously adults when they escaped, but it almost feels like light years away. Mm -hmm. But also like yesterday. Uh -huh. It's weird. Yeah. 
Michelle Knight was present that day and watched as an excavator began destroying the house where she was held against her will for 11 years. Michelle handed out yellow helium-filled balloons to those who had gathered to watch the, the demolition. Michelle told reporters, quote, I want the people out there to know, including the mothers, that they can have strength, they can have hope, and their child will come back, end quote. Like, that's so sweet of her. After everything she's personally been through, like, she was still fighting for the voiceless. Mm-hmm. You know, the, abduct- the abducted children that may not necessarily be, like, completely gone. So, the demolition of the house started around 7.30 a.m., Actually, Gina's aunt assisted in operating the excavator for the first hit onto the home. That's awesome. Yeah. By 10 a.m., the house had mostly been torn down, and the excavator had started placing the debris into, like, a garbage truck. Mm-hmm. Two days before the scheduled demolition, um, Castro's family members were allowed to remove sentimental items from the home, mostly musical instruments and family photographs, and Amanda Berry also returned to the home prior to the demolition to retrieve pictures drawn by her daughter during their captivity. Mm. Yeah. That was, like, so quick, though, that they tore down. That had to be, like, exhilarating mm-hmm. to watch. Yeah. Is there a video of the de- mm-hmm. demolition? Yeah, I'll okay. show you. I'll show you in a little bit. Um, they also talk about it, like, Gina and um, and uh, Amanda in their book talk about, like, they watched it. Yeah. On the news. Like, they, they I mean, they broadcast it. So... On September 3rd, 2013, at approximately 9.20 p.m., so about a month after he was, like, sentenced. Cause he was sentenced what? He was sentenced on August 1st. Wait, where are you headed with this? You'll see. Oh, my God. On September 3rd, 2013, at approximately 9.20 p.m., 53-year-old Ariel Castro was found unresponsive in his prison cell at the Correctional Reception Center in Orient, Ohio. Dr. Jan Gorniak told CNN that Castro hung himself with a bedsheet. It was later reported that Castro attached the bedsheet to the window frame in his cell. CNN reported that prison medical staff attempted to revive him but were not successful. After being discovered, Castro was rushed to the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center where he was pronounced dead at 10.52 p.m. You motherfucker. So he made it a month. You held these women for 10 years. And you couldn't make it. Right. You made it a month. According to the official written statement from the Corrections Department to CNN, Ariel Castro was not included in the general population of the prison. Quote, he was housed in protective custody, which means he was in a cell by himself, and rounds are required every 30 minutes at staggered intervals. A thorough review of this incident is underway. End quote. According to a 2013 ABC News article, two corrections officers were placed on administrative leave pending investigations into Castro's suicide. Castro's cell was 8 feet by 12 feet and included a bed, a sink, a urinal, shower, and a writing surface, so like a desk. He was in his cell alone 23 hours a day and guards were scheduled to check on him every half hour. The Cuyahoga County Prosecutor Timothy J. McGinty did not mince words when it came to Ariel Castro's suicide. He told CNN, quote, These degenerate molesters are cowards. This man couldn't take, for even a month, a small portion of what he had dished out for more than a decade, end quote. CNN also reported that Ariel Castro's family first heard about his death from the media. The family was not notified by the warden of the prison until around 1 a.m. So naturally, like, they were pretty upset. Boo fucking who. <laughs> right. 
According to a December 2013 CNN article, correction officers found Ariel Castro with a bedsheet tied around his neck, his knees bent, and his shorts around his ankles. It had only been 27 minutes since they had last checked on him. The fact that Castro was found with his pants around his ankles and no underwear on caused internet rumors of autoerotic asphyxiation to run rampant. I mean, that's not so far-fetched. Yeah, and I figured maybe everyone didn't know what that was, so according to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, autoerotic asphyxiation is, quote, a state of asphyxia intentionally induced as by smothering or strangling oneself so as to heighten sexual arousal during masturbation, end quote. Even though that theory is very sensationalist and I'm sure it sold many newspapers and magazines, the report released by the Corrections Department found that, according to other inmates, Castro often had trouble holding his pants up after losing weight in prison. A prison official also told CNN that Castro, quote, frequently did not wear underwear, end quote. So officials were not surprised when he didn't have underwear on at the time of his death. So... Ariel Castro was not the first inmate to commit suicide in Ohio in 2013. He was actually the 10th. What a shame. (laughs) Due to this, prison officials ordered an independent report. The report was titled, Report on Recent High-Profile Inmate Suicides Within the Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Correction. Review and legal analysis was jointly performed by um, prison experts Lindsey M. Haynes and Fred Cohen. Or Cohen. Another reason for this report is that there were 32 suicides within the DRC between 2009 and 2013. In that time, the suicide rate per 100,000 inmates jumped from 7.8 in 2009 to 19.8 in 2013. So, like, that's a big leap. The rate in 2013 was higher than the national average of 14 deaths per 100,000 inmates. So, the team reviewed all 16 inmate suicides that occurred in DRC facilities between January 2012 and August 2013, which is interesting because they included Castro's summary in their report even though he died September 3rd, 2013. So, just weird. But anyways. According to the report, Castro had a, quote, suicide attempt history from the previous facility where he was held from the time of his arrest on May 9th, 2013 to his transfer after his sentencing on August 2nd, 2013. The report stated that Castro had been diagnosed with adjustment disorder with depressed mood at one correctional facility. According to the Mayo Clinic, quote, symptoms mainly include feeling sad, tearful, and hopeless and experiencing a lack of pleasure in the things you used to enjoy, end quote. Oh, you mean your fucking freedom. I got it. Right. Subsequently, he was diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder with antisocial features at the Correctional Reception Center, CRC, where he ultimately committed suicide. According to the Mayo Clinic, narcissistic personality disorder is, quote, a mental condition in which people have an inflated sense of their own importance, a deep need for excessive attention and admiration, troubled relationships, and a lack of empathy for others. But behind this mask of extreme confidence lies a fragile self-esteem that's vulnerable to the slightest criticism, end quote. That sounds like him. Oh, for sure. Also sounds like a lot of people I know. But upon arriving at CRC, Castro was immediately placed in the segregation unit due to the notoriety of Castro's crimes. An operations order was placed on him that, quote, 
limited his move limited his movement in the segregation unit prohibited any contact with other inmates and required a correction supervisor to be present when the inmate was delivered meals and removed from his cell end quote so like they were watching him a note dated september 3rd the day castro died was found in his cell where he quoted scripture and said that people who confess with their heart quote will be saved end quote he also wrote in all capital letters quote god loves you end quote then continued quote for all are sinners we all fall short of the glory of god christ is my savior and yours end quote i hate when 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 people like pervert religion like that i just i can't no you were not forgiven sorry like you're not period hell is hot boy right you hang out there down there with satan Ultimately, the report found that prison guards skipped some of the routine checks on the day of Castro's suicide and then falsified the logs to make it look like they actually did check on him. The, reported, the report ended the summary of Castro's suicide saying, quote, In conclusion, based upon the fact that this inmate was going to remain in prison for the rest of his natural life under the probability of continued perceived harassment and threats to his safety, his death was not predictable on September 3rd, 2013, but his suicide was not surprising and perhaps inevitable, end quote. So, like, those two officers were placed on, like, administrative leave. I think they were allowed to come back. I mean, the biggest thing was that they, they falsified the logs. I mm-hmm. mean, it's one thing if you didn't do your job, but then you're going to lie about it, you know? Mm-hmm. So, enough about him. Thank you, Jesus. Right. So enough about Errol Castro. Like, fuck him. I'm glad he's dead. Sorry, not sorry. So now I want to talk about the survivors and where they are today. In an effort to distance herself from her trauma, Michelle Knight changed her name and now goes by Lily Rose Lee. I, I mean, hey, I get it. She also got married on May 6, 2016, the third anniversary of her escape from the House of Horrors on Seymour Avenue. So, like... That's probably her also reclaiming that date, mm-hmm. you know, for, like, herself, you know. She learned the fate of her son from her lawyer after she got out. Joey was adopted by a foster family when he was four years old, and he was three when she was uh, taken, or almost three. Um, Joey's adoptive parents didn't want Michelle to have direct contact with him. They were concerned it would be too traumatic for him because by the time Michelle escaped captivity, Joey was 13, almost 14 years old. Mm -hmm. So as sad as I am for Michelle, I can understand why, like, his adoptive parents, you know, made that decision. But Michelle wrote um, Joey's adoptive parents a letter and they wrote back and sent her pictures of Joey, like, as he was growing up. So, like, at least they did that. Yeah. You know. And she said, like she's just kind of waiting until like i guess he's older and maybe he'll try to find her Mm -hmm. um according to a 2020 aetv article gina was excited to learn to drive when she escaped because i mean she was only 14 Mm -hmm. at the time of her escape she was 23 years old and had been deprived of the right of passage of learning how to drive and receiving her driver's license as a teen gina now has her driver's license and is going back to school Both Gina and Amanda received honorary high school degrees from John Marshall High School, which is the school Amanda was attending when she disappeared, and the school Gina was going to attend once she entered high school. Amanda has also been able to raise her daughter in a safe, healthy, and loving environment. 
According to the same 2020 AETV article I mentioned before, all three women are involved in work to help other survivors and work really hard raising awareness for missing persons or assisting families of missing persons. Lily, formerly Michelle, founded Lily's Ray of Hope, which according to their website is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting and addressing the needs of women and young girls who have experienced physical and emotional abuse through domestic violence, human trafficking, and child abuse. Lily's Ray of Hope provides many services to survivors, including housing, clothing, um, education assistance. If you'd like to donate, you can do so by visiting liliesrayofhope.org, and I'll definitely link that in our show notes, just in case anyone's interested. So since 2017, Amanda Berry has hosted a segment that airs on Fox 8 News Cleveland that highlights missing persons cases. And she also, Amanda and Charles Ramsey were reunited in 2019 for a segment on Fox 8 Cleveland. And they discussed Ramsey helping to rescue Amanda. And, um, you know, she was like asking him if he had ever seen or heard anything suspicious in the year that he lived there. I think we briefly mentioned this in the last part. It was like that eight-minute video that you had found. Um, it's like a really good interview, so I'll link that video too. Um, Gina also became an ambassador for Northeast Ohio Amber Alert in early 2018. Later that year, Gina and her cousin, Cleveland activist Sylvia Cologne, she's also the one who spoke for her at trial or at the sentencing, They founded the Cleveland Family Center for Missing Children and Adults. According to their website, clevelandmissing.org, Sylvia and Gina believe a family should never have to beg for help. They should have resources readily available to them to assist in bringing their loved ones home. We promise to always be the soft place for families to land. The organization assists families of missing persons by helping them make flyers, acting as a middleman between media and police, and checking on families just to like ensure that they're still eating sleeping you know taking care of themselves because cops don't have time to do that kind of thing you know like because they're trying to find the missing people so the center's headquarters opened in november 2020 and has 2500 square feet in the pivot center for art dance and expression and is located on the same block as the house of horrors where gina was held captive for almost 10 years Gina told A&E, quote, our space is located on West 25th in Seymour, right where I was held captive for nine years, right on the corner, because I wanted to bring something positive to that street. If I can be on that street, then anybody else can be on that street too, end quote. So they all seem to be, you know, thriving and doing pretty well. As much as they can, yeah. Yeah, so um, to like final thoughts, I don't know. Do you want me to go first or do you want to go first? I mean, I thought I was pretty opinionated throughout. Yeah. So, like, I don't know. Like, this case really disturbed me. Like, I thought I knew a good bit about it. But after doing the research, like, I was like, damn, I really, like, did not know. Mm-hmm. So, please go out and read the books by the survivors. Um, Finding Me, A Decade of Darkness, A Life Reclaimed by Michelle Knight, and Hope, A Memoir of Survival in Cleveland by Amanda Berry and Gina De Jesus. Both books were invaluable resources uh for these episodes and i think everyone should read them because there's like so much more that like i couldn't even go into but overall like i'm in honestly like in all of these three women like 
they aren't victims you know like they're survivors mm-hmm. and to take what they've been through and turn it around into something positive is like really amazing to me because i don't like i don't know how you do that mm-hmm. you know and uh, uh ariel castro is such a piece of shit and i'm truly ashamed that we like kind of have the same name like fuck him um i'm glad he's dead and i hope he's in hell right where he belongs being satan's little bitch boy um you know i said what i said i make no apologies so i hope satan does everything to him that he did to the girls and then some yeah exactly well that's Um, part three finale (laughs) yeah it was a rough one um i'm really tired so i'm not gonna run through y'all know where to find us yeah for sure hit us up send us a message follow us on social media have a uh, have a good day guys yeah that's the case of the cleveland kidnappings bye, bye.